so the goal is to use human intelligence, not artificial intelligence, to give people the information they need to understand the reliability and the trustworthiness of what they're about to read. Hello, and welcome to the Meaningful Business Podcast. I'm Peter Sianovich, Deputy Editor at Hot Topics and your host. Together, we're going to find out how business leaders are championing purpose, people and planet alongside profit, and in the process, how to define and lead a meaningful business. Our first guest, who you've just heard, is Stephen Brill, co-CEO of NewsGuard, a company that is synthesising technology and the expertise of industry-leading journalists to create an online tool that can fight fake news, disinformation and even poor or lazy reportage. High-quality journalism is a strong indicator of a highly functioning democracy, which in turn provides a stable foundation for good business. For Stephen and his New York City-based team, therefore, this is a cause worth fighting for. I caught up with Stephen whilst he was at NewsGuard HQ in New York, fresh from a round of hype regarding NewsGuard's recent red flagging of the Daily Mail, a story broken by The Guardian and then gleefully shared across the internet. It's a fun story, but will NewsGuard's badges have the impact on online journalism it desires and we ultimately need? Uh, well, Stephen, thank you, thank you very much for joining me. Um, to kick us off, why don't you describe NewsGuard for the listener who hasn't heard of you? Sure. Uh, NewsGuard is a service that uses uh, journalists to read, review, and rate the reliability and transparency of the thousands of, of news and information sites that, uh, that one comes across online. And our approach is to apply nine specific uh, journalistic criteria that are universally agreed by journalists are, are are the key ingredients of reliability and transparency, and apply those criteria unflinchingly, regardless of the political leaning the site may have or or who its people are. And if you uh, succeed in enough of the nine criteria, you get a green rating, and if you don't, you get a red rating. Once you install the plugin, a a green badge or a red badge will pop up alongside any news and information you see. So the goal is to use human intelligence, not artificial intelligence, to give people the information they need to understand the reliability and the trustworthiness of what they're about to read. Interesting. I mean, the the label news with a nutrition label. I mean, uh, comes to mind. I yes. think that's one that's stuck. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, that's what we do. What we do is, if you hover over the green or the red, you'll start to see what we call our nutrition label, which uh, which uh, delineates how well the site did according to the nine criteria, and then is a three or five hundred word uh, explanation of why we decided exactly what we decided. Our goal is to be exactly the opposite of an algorithm, which is to say we're completely transparent, we're accountable, you know why we did what we did. If you want to complain to us about it, uh, we will listen to you, we will process those complaints. Um, And the other thing we do that an algorithm doesn't do is we call everyone for comment. If we're going to say even 
one negative thing. If we're going to uh, give a red mark on even one of the nine criteria, we call for comment and we include the comment or once once we get the comment, you know, we may decide our initial judgment was wrong and we've been persuaded to change it to a green. So transparency, exactly. I mean, you have had pushback, I imagine. Clearly, some news sites aren't going to be very happy with a with a red label sticking all over them. So what has been that process? Have you been surprised by that? Uh, there's been very little pushback in large part, again, because uh, there really aren't any surprises because before anyone gets a red, we've, we've tried to contact them a minimum of three times uh, for comment. The only surprises come when for for some reason, maybe it falls through the cracks, maybe people don't know who we are, maybe they're busy, or maybe they're arrogant. Uh, they don't answer us. Uh, you know, they don't uh, answer us in advance and decide to comment. And then they see a red rating and they say, oh my God, how did we get this? Who are these people? And then it gets splashed all over all over the news as well. Well, there's been not, very not little of that. There's been a little of that in uh, the UK because um, though we haven't launched it in the UK, there are about a half a dozen sites that are based in the UK that were among the 2,200 sites that we rated when we launched in the United States this past fall. And uh, you know, so therefore, those ratings are up there, although you know, they weren't very much noticed in the UK until The Guardian noticed that we had rated, um, initially rated the Daily Mail Red, and The Guardian gleefully reported that. Yeah, I mean, 2,200... Sounds like a lot, and it is a lot, and considering you've only um, sort of launched since last autumn, as, as you say. Yeah. Um, so backtrack now, what, what's the story? I mean, the context, we understand, false news, misinformation, disinformation. Um, but from, from your position um, as co-CEO, how did you get NewsGuard, or how did NewsGuard grow from an idea in the back of a napkin to a fully-fledged organisation with all those journalists? Well, I have a, a history of, of taking ideas on the back of a napkin, and you know, making them happen for better or worse. Um, uh, a while back in um, the early 1990s, I got an idea that uh, that people would be interested uh, watching uh, the trials going on in 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 uh, America's uh, courtrooms, and started uh, Court TV, the cable channel. Um, so I've done a bunch of businesses that start, as, um, as you well put it, on the back of a napkin. Here, the idea was this, which is um, in in the text world, uh, you know, before everything you know went into the digital world, um, you could go to a newsstand and you could look at the cover of a newspaper or a magazine and get a feel for what it was like and who was behind it. Um, if you went to a library, the books were arranged, you know, by subject matter. Uh, you knew who the publisher was. You knew who the author was. If you looked at the book and picked it up, there was a little bio of the author that told you who the author was and you know what his or her credentials were. Um, the internet is really as if you walked into a library and the only thing you saw were millions of, of pages of paper flying around in the air, and you grab one and you look at it. You know, you grab one and you look at it. You say, "Well, who wrote this? Uh, who's behind it? Uh, where does it come from?" Uh, should I believe it? Should I not believe it? Are these people conservative? Are they liberal? You just don't know anything. So the goal of NewsGuard, and in fact the reason it's been grabbed onto by libraries across the U.S. and soon in the U.K., 
who have installed our browser plugin is to do what librarians used to do, which is explain to you what you're reading, not block what you're reading, not have a secret algorithm that suppresses it, that puts them on the bottom shelf instead of the top shelf, but it you know, makes everything available equally, but explains the context of who's behind it, uh, do they have an agenda? And you know, having an agenda doesn't make you a bad person. It's just if you were reading, you know, a story about a big, uh, you know, corporation and how wonderful it was, and if it turns out that uh, it was written by the corporation as opposed to by um, a journalist, that would make a difference in the way you would regard it as you read it. So that's our goal: is simply to give people information about what they're reading. And in the case of of sites that we find you know, violate most of the journalistic criteria that that any journalist would say are the basic criteria. Uh, we put a red badge on it, which doesn't say don't read it. It doesn't say it should be censored. It just says proceed with caution. And then the nutrition label explains why you should proceed with caution. Sure. So in a, in a physical sense, if, if a particular publication was thought to be publishing something that was had disinformation, one would think that people would stop buying it online that's like different so do you have you had any metrics about how your sort of nutrition labels let's call them have had a, an effect on visitor sites yes in fact we have um we uh, the gallup organization which is a uh, you know major uh, you know public opinion uh, uh research organization uh, worldwide did a study where they took something like a thousand people at random who had downloaded uh, the NewsGuard plugin, uh, the browser extension plugin in the United States, and found that they were overwhelmingly something like 70% less likely to share something if it had a red rating next to it, and overwhelmingly more likely to share something that had a green rating. So... That's a pretty significant effect. Was that a, was that a surprise? Uh, those numbers were better than even I thought they'd be. Um, also found that 90% generally agreed our ratings were reliable. And I think the the real root of that is that we're so transparent about why we're doing what we're doing. You can read the biographies of the three or four people who we're responsible for drafting our nutrition labels, so you can see if they have any access to grind. Um, you can see if anyone's complained about it and what our answer to the complaint is. So I think that, um, as often is the case, that you know, the true transparency engenders the kind of trust that you're hoping for. Absolutely. And, and, and following on from that, what have you guys learned about the state of journalism really since this? We 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 understand and we think we understand more about how journalism is evolving, um, especially online. But clearly with data, you can actually get a, a proper look into that. So what have you discovered apart from this um, green and red um, lighting? Uh, well, two things. One is, is not surprising, and it's almost a cliche, which is that there is a, shall we say, a broad range of quality online. Um, there's a there's a lot of garbage. There's a lot of real garbage. There's a lot of propaganda, a lot of disinformation, but there are also um, a lot of uh, uh, websites and, and blogs that you and I might not have heard of that are 
really high quality. And one of the real joys of doing NewsGuard is that um, we've rated uh, the 2,200 sites in the United States responsible for 96% of all the news and information shared online. And when you go that deep, you find you know, blogs about the school system in, in Denver, Colorado, that are really high quality. And so we're really elevating them because we're discovering them. They're getting a green badge. They can then, you know, brag as they should on their about section that they have the green rating. Um, and so the range is one thing. But the second thing, which is really kind of depressing, is there there, there are a ton of real garbagey sites that really don't fit into the propaganda and and fake news bucket because they're not political they're just it's just stuff like um uh you know phony healthcare sites uh, phony sites you know selling um nutrition supplements that are bogus it's just it's all that stuff i guess if you think about it you should expect it because um you know it's easy to go online um, and try to make money and another category like that is there are sites that will say, you know, CBSNews9LosAngeles.com, which looks like the, you know, the website of a local, uh, you know, television station in Los Angeles, and they're just, you know, carrying the most ridiculous horror stories and and grisly stories and crazy stories, and they're doing it, you know, just for the money. We uh, uh, we discovered a chain of those sites that sounded like that. The I think there were 46 of them or something that were, um, and there was one guy in Australia who was responsible for all of them. Wow, uh, really? had no no true news at all. It was all crazy stuff, and he it, it did sounds, it for the money. Yeah, it sounds like then Stephen, there's there's a dual aspect here. Of, you know, you've got your news guard who are flagging up these issues, but then you've also got an education piece somewhere whereby you or I, who may know the industry a bit better than most, still needs to be told about what categories of sites are out there? Because I, I had no idea about that, and I, I, I feel like... Yeah, no, it's really crazy. Well, and, and, and there's a real news literacy piece of this, and we're working with school systems and libraries in the U.S. and and, and soon in the U.K. and around Europe, um, which is... Um, I'll give you an example. If you in the U.S. do a Google search for what is fracking, um, and you know what fracking is, right? Hydraulic, you know, oil fracking which is a highly controversial subject, right? So you do a Google search, what is fracking? Uh, you can do it right now if you have a plug-in. Uh, the second or third site that will pop up in the search is a website called whatisfracking.com, which makes sense, right? Um, when, you, when you start to read it, it, you'll see it reads like a sober discussion of the pros and cons of fracking. So imagine, you know, you're a high school student uh, and you've been asked to do a paper on fracking. So you'll start reading that. And it's a sober discussion of the pros and cons of fracking, except if you keep reading, what you'll see is it's mostly pros, and the only con is that there isn't enough fracking going on. Um, if you scroll all the way, all the way, all the way down to the bottom of the page, you'll see a tiny copyright bug, little, the tiniest print you can put on a computer. Um, and it says copyright api.org. API is the American Petroleum Institute. It's the Industry Trade Association for fracking. Now, until we called them for comment, by the way, it used to say 
the frackingsafetyinstitute.org, um, which we figured out was owned by the American Petroleum Institute. So they changed it to say, you know, API.org. Who's going to know what API.org is? So we gave that a red rating for not disclosing. <laughs> and that went down like a lovely. So, so, that, so that's the kind of news literacy that we're, we're trying to promote it. You know, it's a totally innocent mistake you could make. And this is even before we get on to actually technology and the relationship between tech and online. I'm, I'm talking about AI mm-hmm. video editing, AI voice editing. Um, that's a whole different kettle of fish, let's call it. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Right. But speaking of artificial intelligence, speaking of artificial intelligence, there is no way artificial intelligence would, would catch what is fracking.com. Because it, you know, there's no hate speech. You can't program to, you know, you, know, you can program machine learning to catch hate speech. There's no pornography. Machine learning can be programmed to catch pornography. This is just a. It reads like a, you know, a report from the Economist about fracking, except it's not. Um, and it takes a human being to read it and see, you know, okay, who are these guys, and. It takes reporters to track down, okay, what is API.org? What is that? It almost sounds like the the next sort of the next sort of journalism is vetting journalism, really, yeah. isn't it? I mean, we've, we've talked a bit about NewsGuard, um, but also this podcast is to sort of find out more about the leaders behind those organizations as well. So from your experience now, Stephen, I mean, what are your go-to sites now for, uh, for online news, if, if you have any? Well, the same as they've always been i have a lot of as, as a result of this experience i i have a you know a catalog in my head of a lot of don't go to sites uh you know for sure but uh you know i i i read a, a wide array of things i try to make myself read um stuff that i might not agree with but that is done by you know reliable serious people um but i i'm i'm not a anyway a typical person i'm a total junkie for all kinds of things. I've 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 written books about uh, homeland security, about uh, public education, about healthcare in the United States, and I, and for some reason I've sort of kept my news alerts related to all of those subjects over the years. So I just I can't I can't wipe that stuff off of my email. I'm just still too curious about it. And you've been an editor and in the industry for for years now. I mean, what? Looking back, what what is the single biggest change that you've seen in journalism um, across your career? Well, just to, uh, well, really, uh, you know, two things that are closely related. Uh, one is that anybody can be a publisher. Anybody can put news and information or or opinion out there, which, as a general matter, is a good thing. I mean, it it it, it used to be that the problem, certainly in the United States, and the 60s and 70s that people focused on was that uh, that media power was so concentrated that people, uh, you know, had to, that you know big corporations owned four or five or six uh, news organizations and that was it and they were all pretty much mainstream and down the middle. That's obviously changed and there are a lot of good things about that. What's not good about that though is that people tend to want to you know, just read and watch the stuff they agree with. And therefore, uh, you know, there is all kinds of, uh, you know, polarization across the Western world uh, because people just are, you know, seeing and reading on, you know, on their on their Facebook feeds 
the stuff they agree with. And they, they're also seeing a lot of unreliable stuff because, again, anybody can be a publisher. So that's one big change. The second change is that um, the challenge of uh, the Internet is to you know, the business model of uh, good journalism. Good journalism takes money because uh, reporters tend to want to eat. They tend to want to pay rent. They tend to want to have families that <laughs> really? need to eat and have a place to live. And so, you know, you can type up anything and put it online, but to do real reporting takes real time and real expertise. And the and the mistake that uh, that most journalism organizations made at the beginning of the Internet is uh, they gave their stuff away for free in the hopes that advertising revenue would pay for it all. And there's no way advertising revenue pays for a wall. But there's no way it can because there's an unlimited supply of page views. And therefore, the price of an ad on any of those pages just keeps going down, down, down. So now, uh, you know, now a lot of organizations are are appropriately starting to charge for their content online, which if you're a journalist like I am, that's a good thing because, uh, you know, people will, if people are asked to pay for content, there's a premium on people who can produce good content. Mm, the, the paywall concept, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the Financial Times are quite well known for it, absolutely. Um, I mean, with that being said, though, um, what would you do differently then across the Knowing what you know now, what would you do differently? Would you would you change anything? Would you go a different route? Would you get out of this industry while you could? <laughs> no, no, no. I love I, I love what I'm doing. Um, there are there are various uh, you know publishing mistakes I've made along the way for the magazines I've started, but uh, not that one. I always you know I never gave good journalism away for free because I just plain don't believe in it. Um, but you know a lot. Part of what I can tell you is in, in any endeavor I started, um, I started a magazine called The American Lawyer, which ended up being a, you know, uh, quite a successful national magazine in the United States. And when I published, when uh, the first issue came off the press, this is like a long time ago, um, I thought it was the greatest thing since Gutenberg had invented the printing press. I just thought it was wonderful. By the time the second issue came out, I was literally going around hiding copies of the first issue because I was so embarrassed by it because the second issue was so much better. <laughs> and that's a, you know, it's a process. If you don't keep getting better at what you're doing as you're doing it, you probably ought to be doing something else because you're no longer learning and it's no longer fun. Exactly, like any startup. Um, yeah. Speaking of, this this whole podcast is dedicated to having sort of meaningful conversations about business. So as my last question, um, if... I should invite one more person onto this uh, show. Who who would you like, want it to be, and uh, and why? Uh, you know, I tend to really respect people, and I'm, and I'm fascinated by people who've done something, invented something totally new. And one person who stands out in that regard, who is you know probably long forgotten because it was so long ago, but he's still around. Um, is Ted Turner who invented CNN. Ted Turner. Okay. I'll be sure to try and get him onto the podcast next time. <laughs> Stephen, thank you. you thank you very much for your time. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how sure. uh, how the future of NewsGuard plays out and indeed the, the future of journalism online. 
Next week, I'll be chatting to Matthew McAllister, ex-Newsweek editor-in-chief and now managing director of Intelligence Squared. Intelligence Squared is a global organisation dedicated to organising and hosting fascinating debates with some very well-known people. If you don't know them, though, take some time to listen to some of the debates before next week's episode and then find out why Matthew believes the role of critical debate is more important now than ever before.